2: back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is the second Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Seminars question and answer session. So we had Dr. Michael Ray and Dr. Derek Miles. They were in Reno, Nevada with the rest of the Barbell Medicine crew, sans me. I know everyone was sad. And they recorded this Q&A all by themselves. I'm so proud of the audio that they got. It's high quality. We've got timestamps that are in the description below. If you want to listen to the first Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Seminar Q&A, I've also linked that in the description below, so you can check that out either before or after uh, you check this one out. So without any further ado, let's get to it.
3: So question number one, what is your approach to someone so pain-focused they can't give activity-based goals because they only care about decreasing pain? How do you find meaningful activities? It's um, a good question. So they're just highly focused on decreasing their pain. I think the part that I would address on this is pretty easy, is meaningful activities would be directed by them, right? Like, they're seeing me because they're probably suffering that's related to the pain that they're experiencing, which is mitigating them from wanting to engage activity that they value. So part of the job would be, what are they wanting to be able to do, and how can I help facilitate that? And maybe that's as simple as just me educating i mean i do one-off consultations for low back pain pretty regularly Um, and if that works then that's good i don't need to go any further but i think there's also a really good argument for exposure-based therapy implementing exercise prescription to get them back to activity over time so you can guide that path but i'm not really defining meaningful activities for them they're telling me what they want to do for being focused on decreased pain i try to set the expectation like hey that's that's going to happen and we don't need to be too hyper focused on that And once we kind of set that expectation and give reassurance and we get them moving and doing the things they want to do, they realize, like, oh, I am capable of this. And maybe I don't have zero symptoms, but I'm doing it with some symptoms, and that's okay because I know it's not equaling me harming myself.
4: I mean, I think some of it early on, if that's their goals, you obviously have to respect their goals. It comes down to starting to talk to them and getting to know them and what their beliefs are and seeing them as a person. And I understand that sounds like, a little overly philosophical, but if you're having someone going through a bad experience and I think most of us will concede that being in pain to where that's your only focus will qualify as a bad experience, then really one of your big drivers should really be to help them through that experience. And you may not necessarily start with an absolute focus on their activity or whatever their goals are um, so much as just like letting them talk and you sometimes can't overstate how important it is for some of these individuals to feel like they're being heard and especially if the main driver is pain letting them be heard talking through why it is they feel the way they do like it it tends to be one of the primary drivers to helping them through the process
3: yeah I, i don't think i would add too much other than we've talked about this before the nail on the forehead video. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where like if you has a, have a significant other, uh, if you've not seen this video, I recommend it. But to Derek's point is like letting someone talk. Um, this happens all the time in my marriage where Erica is very upset about something. And I think I have a propensity and as most of us do in relationships, we're like, we're going to try to fix this rather than just being like I'm going to sit here and listen and this isn't the time for me to fix something and I think it's like clinicians we're driven to try to fix things for people versus just like hearing them out to your point this video is like I don't know a couple minutes long it's pretty short but it's basically a guy sitting on the couch with his significant other and she has a literal nail in her forehead and the whole time um he's trying to fix this and just be like yeah your headache's because you got this nail in your forehead and she's like shut up like just stop don't don't do that and then she'll be like uh, he'll be like okay I'll just sit here and then she's like every time I put a sweater on I like snag it and I have a hole in it now and he's like well honey you know like it's like and she's like if you say that one more time I'm leaving <laughs> and so like that's kind of what I think about and to Derek's point is like yeah sometimes they just sit here and listen which is what I was talking about with low back pain and uh the case context is I just let the person talk as long as they need to and I think you've said you're like you're at like 45 minutes
4: I will let someone talk for as long as they need to, and I have had individuals approach 30 minutes without me saying a word. You know, some of it is, like, let them get it out. Like, let them be heard. Let them feel like someone actually sat there and listened to them the whole time. And, you know, you're going to hear a story. And I think when that individual finished, uh, my response was, well, we certainly have some things to talk about the rest of the evening. And you know, we kind of go from there. So can either of you give an example over the last year where you actively challenged your biases? What was the outcome? Um, The easy answer to this um, is we try and do it on a regular basis. One of the big things I try and seek out is disconfirming information. Uh, I follow some people on social media that I fundamentally disagree with but I do to the ones who like, can at least cite their work. And a lot of times they'll make a point like, man, that I really disagree with that, I should go read that paper. And sometimes they have a very valid point out of it. That's why I would be remiss to say that I'm certain about a lot of things. Like I I know some of these individuals read the exact same papers I do and read different or reach different conclusions. It's not inherently bad. And in all honesty, I think like if I practice in the clinic with some of them, I'd probably be okay with the vast majority of what they do. And like, they're going to challenge me, I'm going to challenge them. I mean, I, I said earlier, part of the advice for really getting better at some of this ACL rehab is talking to people who do things differently than you. And I tend to try and actively seek that out.
3: Yeah, I don't know that I have much to add to that other than, yeah, we disagree all the time. Um, and a lot of it is just like hearing the other person's perspective and seeing how they're thinking through it and be like, oh, I haven't considered that. But it takes the kind of operational premise of I don't have everything figured out and I don't act like I'm always right. And I know I'm uncertain about a lot of things. But it, when you operate from that premise, you're much more willing to hear someone else's perspective. Um, and you're much more willing to be like, oh, I haven't thought of that and try to consider it. Now, that's not in all scenarios. Some of it is I trust Derek known each other for a while i trust austin and other people that i've worked with if it was someone that was like brook brush who handed me 300 citations for some bs that they were spouting i'm like i really don't trust you and derek you kind of what do you you pull like his first three citations
4: yeah i mean for instances like that like if you're dealing with some individuals who are, are certainly good at putting a bibliography together like start checking just some of the sources at random and see if it checks out. None of us are ever going to sit there and read 300 papers that someone uses as a counter argument. There's actually a term for that called a gish gallop where someone just throws an insurmountable amount of information at you in order to inundate you to where you know that the other person's not going to go look at it. But if I pull two or three and like, even if you just get into the methods section are like major flaws supporting the claim, like... Odds are, like, the rest of the argument is going to start not being as strong. And, like, people like that, good on them. It's their shtick. And it's always going to happen that way. And it's going to ultimately be, you know, most of the people in this room have doctoral level degrees. So it's really on us to be the ones that are sifting through the literature and checking what's getting put out. But I would hope after this weekend we've had a pretty decent conversation about how we don't have a lot of this figured out. And once again, the degree of certainty with, to which someone arrives at an argument tends to give me pause on really where I'm going to go with it. So how do you approach constraints placed by a patient's physician? This is one instance where I think you and I will give drastically different answers. A patient has a disc bulge or an MRI, so the patient tells them they can't squat. After hearing the second part, maybe not.
3: Yeah. I think context would definitely matter, but since they gave us context in this regard, um, it was just a a disc bulge with low back pain. uh, It's just going to be reframing the discussion. Like, what are their beliefs about what they've been told by someone else? And then seeing, you know, how much does this matter in the context of their case and what they want to be able to do? Probably try to move them away from image findings as much as possible. Uh, I can't unring that bell once it's been done, but I can kind of normalize the situation talk about the evidence that we have on this topic, if they're interested in it, and then move away from that stuff as best as possible. And I often say that to people. I'm like, let's just try to move our thought process as far away from those image findings as possible, because it's not going to be beneficial. And in fact, it could be quite harmful for us in the long run.
4: That was more similar than I would have thought. Um, I think I'm in a little bit of a different situation just because I work much closer with physicians. And there are a lot more active conversations with them in general. And really, if we're trying to steer the ship, then the conversations need to be have at the entry point as well. So I'm fortunate enough to where on one day a week, I actually work in physician clinic and see clients with them. So we're discussing cases the whole time. And, you know, it, it is if you know your stuff and you can bring it to the table with your own citations, like you're gonna be welcomed as a peer and like we have the same type of arguments that you mike and i have or you know any of us would have none of us have it all figured out and i do think saying something like you have a herniated disc so they can't squat like not good advice like i'm likely going to still have that person do something that would resemble a squat as at some point that individual is going to have to get up and down off a toilet at some point but I may start by framing it as such instead of just out of the gate calling it a squat. Next question, what was the average age of the population in the Borman RCT study?
3: Yeah, so that one was the five-year outcome study. They did a, well, they did a two-year outcome for the original study, I think it was in 2014, and they did a follow-up in 2018 on five-year outcomes for uh, non-operative treatment of rotator cuff tears. And the mean age was 60, it spanned 40 to 85
4: in heavy slow resistance training how slow exactly for the eccentric and concentric portion of each rep so if you look at the literature they tend to advocate for a three second rep but i don't think coming in at 2.7 seconds versus 4.2 is going to really change much like the key to it is it should be a slow controlled rep and that really seems to be where the evidence is leading it's not a specific timing it and if you think about it like if you make the heavy heavy enough the slow will be slow enough and and i think that is a a decent way of kind of approaching it especially when you look at a lot of the way that you know the Bayer study for achilles tendinopathy really took people to 12 rm 10 rm 8 rm so you're trying to get closer and closer to likely what we would consider like an rp 8 to 10 you're not going to move that weight fast
3: if you subscribe to our monthly review, um, do you remember what month that was? I want to say it was like November or October. We went into depth on like, are there particular contraction types we should be doing with tendonopathies, And if so, how should we be doing it? Does isometric matter? Does it have to be heavy, slow resistance? Does it need to be focused on eccentric tempo work? Um, And I think the data is pretty shaky to say like there's one way to approach this discussion. Like you have to start with isometric. So you have to do HSR and the data isn't, there's not a lot of it and it's often by the same groups and it's very small sample sizes but we talk about that a lot in our uh, i wish i remembered which month but in our tendinopathy article for uh bmr and it, it turns out like yeah it probably matters that we slow down the movement i typically don't necessarily force hsr like i used to where i wanted like six seconds of time under tension but i will slow the repetition down probably the eccentric
4: What papers, books, or other resources do you recommend for clinicians to improve their soft skills in clinic?
3: That's actually a good, timely question. Uh, There's a podcast coming out with me on, I think this Friday with Level Up Initiative. And we actually talk about this. Um, I I don't really like the phrase soft skills because we kind of think like, oh, it's just this easy thing, like soft skills. We just talk to people. It's pretty basic, right? I don't need to learn how to do that. And it's actually quite complicated um, to have these conversations with people at time. And it's one of my areas that I argue for the experience card. Like you need to get reps under your belt, having difficult conversations with people, which is another knock against like light onto the table and let me do something to you because I don't have to have a conversation with you because that's tough. Instead, I need to sit you up, face you, make eye contact, listen to you like a human being and talk to you. But that's really complicated. Um, So part of it's just getting reps under your belt. I would listen to that podcast that's coming out with the level up initiative on Friday. We talk about, a really uh, what i think is one of the important papers from 2019 which is the selling of chronic pain and it's through the lens of uh, low back pain and so they interview clinicians and see like how do you feel about trying to tell people about chronic non-specific low back pain and selling that narrative and it's pretty interesting to like hear their complaints with it and like their struggles in clinical practice um, it's something i've personally felt as far as like this weird paradox I'm supposed to be actively listening to you, I'm supposed to go through what's called motivational interviewing with you, but I'm not supposed to impose upon you my worldview of pain. And that's a really hard thing to do. So I respect your understanding and your belief system about pain, but as a clinician, I need to reframe your beliefs without unnecessarily imposing my beliefs on you. And that's quite hard. Um, it's a really good paper. It was by, I want to say it was by Sullivan. But I'm kind of blanking. If if someone messages me or requests it, I'll send it out to you guys. Huh? Yeah, it is Sullivan. Yeah. yeah. So that really gets at, like, developing soft skills. I think it's a great article, and it's through a phenomenological lens.
4: I think some of the better books out there to start on um, would be Being Wrong by Katherine Schultz. I am a huge fan of that book. The tagline is Adventures in the Margin of Error. And I think the conversation around that as a clinician is a very important one to have. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman is kind of the, the opus when it comes to starting to learn some of our own biases, how it's going to affect our own thought process. Um, Victor Frankl's Man Search for Meaning, I, I think if you've hit those three, you've, you've hit a lot of the cornerstone foundations of what really drives um a lot of the thought process, as it were. And Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning is just it's one of those books that I think you could read two or three times and get something different out of it every time. And it's short. And yes, and it's a yeah. relatively short book. Um as far as papers go, I think a lot of it's contingent upon what your interests are in. But even there I would qualify by saying like you need a broad spectrum of interests. For a while, I was way down a tendinopathy rabbit hole and enjoying the work of Bayer, Kongsgar, Magnuson, and then it shifted more in towards the youth resistance training, and it's turned into um, the other Feigenbaum and Leszczynski, yeah, and some other individuals. And there's a lot of really good information out there, but I also would say out of that, like, the more you read on a broad spectrum, the more it gives you kind of a granular perspective of – everything going on out there because there is a lot of like interrelatedness to it as far as podcasts go i i still think you are not so smart if you just across the board dave mccraney does a phenomenal job and especially as a novice clinician i don't think i could recommend that one highly enough what has been the biggest disagreement if any between you two you and i um the fact that they even said if any makes me laugh so hard our acute on chronic argument load is very high we disagree on a regular basis Um, for those listening mike actually just got up to pour some more whiskey at that question Um, i think what do you think the biggest one would be i likely am a little bit more structuralist than you are i think i would be more than comfortable saying that as far as sometimes i think you got to go straight at some tissue a little bit more than you do you think that's probably the one we fight about the most
3: I think it would be like the question that we had a lot with low back is like, how much does this matter? That's probably our biggest like argument as it relates to tissue status and structure and how I would frame it, which would be embodiment of the individual and their pain experience. Um, Which is interesting, like, because we were just talking about reading, kind of where things lead us and developing over time. I would say I'm much more tilted in the philosophical world at this point, whereas you're probably not up in the clouds as much as I have been recently. Not recently. Yeah. Um, we had a pretty decent argument for about a week about tendinopathies specifically and tissue status and uh, specifically as it relates to vascularity of the area and whether that matters and if so, how much, which I took issue with like methodological concerns of how they were measuring it. And um, I think you said you were at like 60% certainty that it mattered. And I said I was at like maybe 20
4: In the initial phase of the (laughs) argument, Mike said zero, so I moved him from zero to 20, actually.
3: (laughs) That is true. He did bump me up by, like, 20%, so in his defense. Uh, But that's usually how we operate. It's just, like, how much does this matter and how, like, based on how he's presenting his argument or I'm presenting mine, which, if I recall correctly, I reduced your stance slightly from your original. 65 to 60. Yeah, I'll take it. (laughs) Um, but that's how we operate. Like, it's just like a level of certainty on particular topics. Uh, I think if people surrounded, if people were around us on a a daily or weekly interaction, they would be like, are you guys actually friends or do you, are you like enemies to the core? Um, but that's just how we interact with one another.
4: I mean, I, I think after this long, we went back and forth about so many topics, but in the same regard, like some of it was really related to like banging our head into the same wall yeah. Uh, I still remember like one of the first times Mike and I really interacted on like trying to get in some research was looking up the knee wrapping effect. That was disappointing. Yeah. And, and we got to like the end game and the study was like on a cadaver d- goat patella. And like we ended up like emailing the author and we're like, this is really where this entire thing came from. And it turns out it is. Uh, I don't even remember. I just remember. I think I blocked it out because it was just such a disappointment once I got to the end game.
3: I think it was the Hartman article that was looking at forces on the spinal column and the knee joint during squatting. Um, And like their rationale, and like I'm fine with it, like squat as low as you want based on your goals, whatever, it's not a problem. But their argument for why it was okay was called the knee wrapping effect. And gosh, this had to be like 2015 when we looked at this. And we were both ranting about it and we emailed the authors and they sent back just a bunch of like non-human studies to validate their claim. And it was severely depressing because I realized, like, oh, here's a belief I have that's based on shaky evidence. And I probably shouldn't regurgitate the wrapping effect as a rationale for why it's okay to squat ass to grass. So.
4: Yeah, I think that was one where we both entered into it in the certainty realm around, like, 85 and came out around, like, 2.
3: Yeah, it was depressing.
4: Yeah, that that one hurt a little bit. Um, so, Mike, do you use the acute and chronic workload ratio with your athletes and patients? If so,
3: how do you apply it? It's a good question. If you would have asked me that, like, two years ago, I'd have been like, yes. Like, we got to have you in this sweet spot of training. Uh, now, no, uh, which is funny because I just conducted a study on AC ratios uh, in resistant focused athletes. And kind of when I went into this study, my co-author and I, we talked about it. And he was like, well, what are you hoping to find? I was like, nothing. Like I don't expect to see anything in the data that correlates well to injury risk based off of AC ratios, uh, and mostly because uh, there's a lot of issues with this. Like one of the major confounders would be prior training history, and trying to argue that if you're outside of the 0.8 to 1.2 or 1.3 window and you get up to 1.5, suddenly like you're going to internally combust or something or explode doesn't make sense. And I don't think we have supportive data for that. I think there's pretty good. Uh, counter-arguments to the AC ratio at this point from people like Franco Um, What's his last name? I will give you a dollar if you can say it. Yeah, it's like Impelizari or something? Impelizari, I think, yeah. And he actually has a a YouTube video that's phenomenal. If you're really interested in AC ratios and you want to hear a very well articulated counter-argument, I would go listen to it. He does a good job with it. So with that said, like I don't have high expectations. I'm going to find something and the major counter to AC ratios for our cohort, which is typically resistance focused athletes is it's usually session RPE times minutes of training. Well, if you've ever lifted weights, like maybe it takes me two hours, but how many thousands of pounds did I move during that two hours? Like one. Well, it's a good possibility. Yeah. Depending on how lazy I am that day. Yeah. So we actually created a secondary AC ratio, looking at session RPE times tonnage to see like, does this matter more than the prior AC ratio? I still have almost no confidence in actually figuring that out. So I, I typically don't, like it's something like my knee rehab template tracks it. I think they, I'm pretty sure the look back template probably tracks it as well, but I wouldn't be hyper vigilant to it. Like it's just there. I'm much more concerned with like subjective ratings so SRPE. If I see that spiking on a regular basis consistently week after week and then I see objective measurements like load lifted stalling or even regressing, then it just tells me something needs to be changed. But I don't think we have strong enough data to do. it's definitely not as a predictive tool. I wouldn't even attempt to use it like that at this point.
4: In the Lemmer's 2019 MRI study, what qualified an MRI as unnecessary imaging? Oh.
3: Yeah. So it was anything that wasn't a quote unquote red flag. So they weren't searching for some pathoanatomical or pathophysiological issues. The people who were ordering the imaging, it was just for other reasoning. So they weren't looking for like cancer or uh, axial spondyloarthropathies. So it was just for the, if they were looking for the one to four percent of cases we talked about, those studies were actually excluded from the discussion, from the analysis. At what
4: point does something go from merely sensation to nociception? For example, putting your hand
3: into lukewarm water versus hot water. So uh, it's difficult to answer this question, and it's pretty complex. Uh, if we have another day, we probably could start into it. I actually got into an argument with someone, and not really an argument, i uh, more of a discussion about this topic with John Quintner. Who I respect a lot. Uh, I think he's a very bright prior rheumatologist. He's recently retired, but I cited him. Uh, The Cohen article that discusses the updated definition of pain, he's a co-author on it. He's also done things like uh, updating our understanding of congenital insensitivity to nociception. Uh, It typically is called congenital insensitivity to pain, and he wrote a paper about it being a misnomer, which I agree with. I think that it is not possible to separate out sensation and perception. Um, I think that it's amalgamation of both of those. And so I wouldn't even try to say, like, is this just a sensation based on nociception? I would say pain is a physical sensation that's felt, but it's based on your perception of reality and your experience. That's definitely not the answer the person was probably looking for.
4: I'll try and be slightly more concrete, um, which won't be hard in this instance. There are some studies that look at a little bit of the line of demarcation on this, and it it is rather fuzzy. Um, There was one study, and the author's name is slipping my mind, although I know you guys will know it, where they put the same amount of heat on 100 different individuals. Fillingham, Fillingham. Yeah, Fillingham. And they had the individuals rate their pain, and there was a broad spectrum of answers to it. In fact, it covered the entire spectrum of What we would consider the pain scale and i think that makes the case to where it is an individualized response and so there is no clear-cut answer to this now there's another study and the author's going to slip my mind where they essentially took uh facial cream and dyed some of it blue and some of it red kept some of it white they said the blue was analgesic the red was pain generating and the white was neutral and then they applied it to people's skin Caller me surprised, the blue cream had an analgesic effect, the red cream was seen as an irritant, and the white cream was seen as neutral. And this study had layers to it, too, in that there was a subjective report, and they also did some fMRI, which is not without flaws, but the authors did show that what we typically perceive to be uh, an increased signal in individuals experiencing pain, and there's a lot to that sentence, did match up well with what would be considered the standards. And it does really lean credence to this difference typically being a matter of perception. You know, I would say the nociception of getting hit in the face blindsided versus as a boxer gives entirely different sensations. How do you communicate the multifactorialness of pain to patients? Do you use analogies?
3: John, is this your question? John's been asking me this question all weekend, uh, and I feel like he's trying to pin me in a wrestling match. But I, I do use metaphors, but it's it's so dependent on the human I'm talking to that I don't have like generalizable examples of metaphors. I think uh, Nielsen is one of my favorite papers that talks about pain as a metaphor. Highly recommended to people. Um, but I think it's important. It's okay to use metaphors, like we do that all the time in life. Uh, but I think we need to move it away from like clinical apoptolitical analogies, right? Like we talked about in the pain lecture. Uh, so I'm fine with that, but I think you need to make it relatable to the individual. Like if I use an analogy and it has nothing to do with the person in their life and their experience, it's probably not going to be relatable and they're not going to make sense of that discussion. But I'm fine with it. What was the other part of that question?
4: How do you communicate the multifactorialness of pain to patients?
3: yeah i don't know that i directly and explicitly discuss it like i don't talk about models to patients like people see me get into discussions online and talking about various healthcare models and they assume that that means that's how i talk to my patients i i don't like i don't talk about the biopsychosocial model to patients i don't talk about the biomedical model i just have a discussion with them about their pain experience what uh how have they made sense of it and are there ways i could reframe it differently for them to have a better understanding that's a bit more broad potentially away from like a biomedical model but i don't actually mention models to people and i was talking to someone this weekend i don't remember who it was like whether we acknowledge a model or not it exists like we're understanding our reality and interacting with people based on a prior model we don't need to explicitly discuss it and i think in fact when we do that we run the risk of like losing people or invalidating them how
4: would you explain pain manifestation in regards to phantom limb syndrome that's a good question no no oh you're the you're the pain lecturer i was letting you go on this um i I think once again it's meeting the person where they're at we know this is a phenomenon and some of it is starting to work on strategies like uh there is some decent evidence for working on desensitization training early on and starting to work through some of that through the frame of like right now there's just a lot going on you're healing you just had a major life event you know you're going to experience some symptoms out of this and then obviously there is long-term sensation out of this in a certain cohort of individuals now i don't know that i necessarily need to explain away their pain Uh, i need to talk to them about what they're feeling and talk to them about what i can do about it Uh, it's this gets back to this whole like the whole explain pain thing like I, i really don't like trying to explain pain people to people like the analogy or the analogy i always Uh, use um we talk about or how we're trained often is like let's talk about the visual analog scale pain we need to ask that all the time and let's just think about that like in terms of the real world situation like we've all had an individual go through a breakup that we were close with and we've all taken that individual out and tried to get them over the situation like do you sit there and talk to them about their ex the whole time like, can you imagine, like, going out with one of your buddies and being like, hey, man, how do you think uh, Lindsay's doing with her new man? Do you think their love is burning, stabbing, shooting? <laughs> you think she's numb to him already? Because we know that's just kind of an idiotic way of approaching it. But then we'll turn the same type scenario on its head, and the person comes in with pain, and we're like, hold on. Does it hurt here when I poke this? Does it hurt here when I poke this? Is it stabbing? And I think it's just the wrong approach to the entire situation. If you're, especially if you're trying to meet someone where they're at as a person, and you know when you're dealing with someone with phantom limb syndrome, obviously they're having an experience that like is very unique to them. And it's having the discussion of their experience with them. I'm not trying to explain their pain. I'm trying to understand it with them.
3: What was the original
4: question? How would you explain pain manifestation in regards to phantom limb syndrome? I brought it back in the end.
3: I, no, I was, I was proud of that. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
4: is the frequent utilization of Tommy John surgery in pitchers unwarranted and a result of an overly reductionist biomedical approach? Mm. Um, I would say there's a lot of layers to this. I mean, this could literally be a podcast into itself. And if you look at the uptick in it, it also coincides with a lot of the uptick in early sports specialization. So I wouldn't, don't know that I would say it's an entirely biomedical approach. I mean, if you tore your UCL, you tore your UCL. That's just how it is. Probably. Now, if we look at the rate at which people are tearing their UCL, there we, we have some things we can certainly work on. Um, there was kind of in the ether a discussion about individuals trying to have people tear their, a, or their UCL because – a ucl graft is generally accepted to be stronger so you you would have people like advocating for prophylactic ucl reconstruction which that i would say there's some problems with that i would say there's some very very large problems with that but you know to turn it back where we normally go in regards to loading like a lot of the pitch counts are in place at certain age levels for a reason and if you look at the evidence people don't adhere to those a whole lot and guess what happens if you don't adhere to them things happen that we would consider to be not ideal at a higher rate and even then we forget about there there was actually a study um, from giorgio Zeppi area florida where they looked at individuals warming up to pitch and they found that a lot of high school athletes were throwing 60 pitches before they ever hit the mound so like how are we factoring that into our overall training load are we getting everything like we really need as far as our recommendations are going out of it. So, you know, there's a lot to that question, but uh, I would say if, like, I tend to be in the conservative care route, but I think if I tore my UCL and I was a thrower, I'm signing up for surgery on that one.
3: Yeah, it's more of a question of like, what's leading to the UCL actually being sprained to the level of warranting surgical intervention like once it's done and we need you to return to sport there's a high probability you have to have that surgery but the question to what derek was saying is like why did this happen and that's really where we should be hedging our discussions and our bets with people it's like what can we do to mitigate this occurrence and then the prophylactic stuff just doesn't add up like that doesn't make sense to even go down that route did you submit a question for yourself i don't think so
4: <laughs> are you sure
3: i'm pretty sure i'm like i'm like 98 percent sure yeah
4: do nebulous terms such as tightness stiffness decreased tone etc have any place in our narrative or should we strive to mitigate their usage altogether that question is elucidate away from michael ray
3: (laughs) yeah i think well the inside joke there is when i'm writing apparently i use elucidate a lot which i'm just going to use it more when people call me out for it like that's how stubborn i am but um I don't use those terms to describe things. People may describe their experience to me in that manner, and the usual way I try to like reframe that discussion is like, we don't have a, an objective measurement for tightness and like examining it outside of your subjective perception of the issue, and it doesn't mean that there's necessarily something wrong that needs to be corrected. You're just perceiving an area of your body differently than you would necessarily expect it comparatively to another to another side. So it's often talked about like my. Right leg or hamstring feels tighter than my left. And I'm like, well, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem or anything like that. So I wouldn't get hyper focused on it. That's usually how I have that discussion. So I do think from a clinical standpoint, for trying to have discussions with people, I wouldn't give that as a narrative to explain something to someone's experience. But if someone said it to me, I'd probably try to reframe it a little bit.
4: Yeah. I I don't think I've described much as tight, stiff, or I I know I haven't used tone in quite some time. Tone is up there in the, like, tight and stiff. Like, I'll give that one a a solid yellow light tone where we're getting hard into the red light district at that point. Um, uh, There's just better ways of talking about it. But if an athlete feels it, they feel it. Like they're going to describe things to you and that's how it is, yeah, but that doesn't mean they're inherently tight nor stiff, or they have increased tone out of it. It's just how they're describing it to you. <sighs> Man, somebody's teeing you up today. Oh, nice. um, would you ever try to quote unquote correct imbalances, assuming you can, for the purpose of improving lifting efficiency?
3: Okay. So the context here is lifting efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not no i
4: would um there you go we, we have our mike and Derek disagreement if someone is status post acl reconstruction and they want to go back to very efficient lifting and they have a quadricep deficit i am going to work on trying to get that limb symmetry index as close to 100 percent as i can nope i'm not done yet <laughs> If someone uh, – see, we teed up the question. Before, we should have read this that one afterwards.
3: You just added context.
4: Well, no, it actually says, would you try and correct imbalances for, performance efficiency. for the purpose of improving lifting efficiency. No one
3: said ACL reconstruction.
4: I'm going to give you scenarios in which I would.
3: I'm fine with that. I'm just saying you've added context now. And I would change my
4: answer. Okay. Well, then you <laughs> gave a glossy answer that you should have added more context to. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. You're the guy who says words matter, right? Well, yeah. In context. I'm sure. using more of my words I right now. You
3: answered the question to, based on context. And this is how our discussions go. Yeah. Like,
4: um, but, no. So, I've, I've had lifters show up um, after a hamstring muscle injury. Current evidence says you want to get that limb symmetry index greater than 90% we're going to work on that now if you're talking about like the degree of their anterior oblique sling versus whatever other arbitrary Venus being in line with mars outcome measure like no i'm not going to correct that like i want something that's quantifiable actually quantifiable not by palpation and has good evidence if i change that metric it's going to change my outcome or at least has a high probability of changing my outcome as far as just correcting imbalances for the sake of correcting imbalances, I'm entirely with Mike on that,
3: no. Based on Derek's applied context, I would agree with that, yeah, everything he said. And I think that's one of the few areas where we have legitimate evidence to make that consideration. But I think outside of that context, like people just make up pseudoscientific explanations for pain and it leads them down the path of imbalances and we don't have supportive evidence for that for the majority of scenarios and contexts outside of what he just said.
4: Ishimoto 2013, canal stenosis or foraminal or canal only in this study?
3: So for listeners context, that's looking at uh, lumbar spinal stenosis and whether it's correlated well to pain perception, and it turns out it's not. Um, And for Ishimoto, it was looking at um, central stenosis as well as foraminal stenosis so it included both of those topics
4: so i have a feeling the answer for this next question both of us are going to have an answer of no but i think it should be included in the podcast just because if some of our listeners happen to have good resources or in the rehab community um, any information on rehab or exercise for patients with als or experts in the field you guys are aware of I do not personally know anyone who treats nor does research in ALS. It is certainly not my area of expertise. Mike, can I say the same for you? Yeah. But if any of our listeners do have any context for it and they want to put something in the show notes or send one of us a message, I would happily entertain that to try and provide an answer for the person who asked this question. What are some examples of self-care managing strategies you give the general population patients with low back pain?
3: Um, yeah, so I think case context matters, like what are their valued activities they're trying to re- return to. General guidelines, um, remain active to tolerance based on whatever you're trying to do. Remember that just because you're having uh, experiencing pain, it doesn't mean it's correlated to hurt, which doesn't equal harm, which doesn't mean equal avoid. So we need to keep you active to tolerance. Keep in mind, this is going to get better over time. And uh, uh, that you don't necessarily have to do anything special and then try to do compassionate confrontation of misinformation. I think it's like the best bet you could hope for in clinical practice with people. Um, Hear them out. Don't invalidate them. Reassure them it's going to be okay. Typically, it doesn't warrant imaging outside of those one to four percent of cases we talked about. And then, uh, yeah, move them forward from where they're at to where they want to be um i
4: think i would go just a little bit further in in trying to advocate that we do once again hit our minimal physical activity guidelines we are getting the adequate amount of sleep for what it says we should do and you know if you're covering some of the basic things then we can start getting a little bit more into the weeds but there are some very high yield recommendations that seem to have a lot of bang for our buck out of it And, and then like Find something that you enjoy doing that doesn't involve a remote control. Yeah. I think that would be the last piece of advice. Like, there needs to be something active. Yeah. So the overall gist of that, just to reiterate, was likely some advocacy against taking medication early on, especially for just a general episode of low back pain. Um, two more. You got it do your standards for return to sport change based on whether the competition is dynamic ie football or standardized repeatable ie shot put yes that's the answer to that um, a lot of it really comes down to having an honest conversation with the patient on what their goals are and if you look at most of your recommendations across all sports whether it be or across all injuries whether it be for muscle injuries um, acls tendinopathy like we talked during the tendinopathy lecture to where if an or if an individual is experiencing tendinopathy and their goals aren't to go back to running, I may not need to spend a lot of time on the energy storage phase. But if I have a cornerback, I sure as hell better be doing some deceleration work with that individual. I need to be sure I'm emphasizing change of direction. So some of this gets into even like understanding the sport that your athlete participates in. I've I've had a decent bolus of fencers recently and I've learned a lot more about fencing positions than I ever thought I would know. But it's really integral in order to understand the return to sport criteria and where we should really be aiming and trying to like have that progression from return to participation to return to practice, to return
3: to play. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that other than like if you encounter um, an activity someone wants to engage in or return to sport, you're like I know nothing about this. Please go look into it. Try to understand the sport and the position they play. It's really hard to, so- to return someone to play or return someone to sport if you don't understand the demands of what they're trying to return to. Um, and I encounter people all the time. I'm like, I have no idea what that is. I interacted with someone for underwater. Uh, I was like, underwater hockey. I think is what it's called. And I was like, what? That's a sport. <laughs> all right. And I went and looked into it. I was like, well, what do I need them to be able to do? in order to progress them back to return to play. So it's just something to consider. If you don't know about it, just go look into it or ask them, hey, explain your sport to me.
4: With full-time clinics, along with being engaged or married, how much time per day do you set aside to read papers and studies?
3: I don't know that I think about it um it's kind of just like uh and we were talking about this with like behavioral change and making a uh habitual kind of just behavior like it's something i do so i just read um, i don't know that i actually think about how often or how much i read because it just seems like a part of life and then someone will send me an article and i'm like i know nothing about this i need to read it and i just start reading it and get sucked in but i think it's respecting like boundaries of my significant other and like i need to give that attention and not allowing myself to get completely sucked in but i don't have any way to like quantify how often or how much i read comparatively to like other things i do in life it
4: depends yeah um i i never set aside like a finite amount of time a day for it Uh, In, what, two years ago now, I think it was, I set out and was like, let's have a fun arbitrary goal. I'm going to read enough books to stack it from the floor to the ceiling of my apartment. And I was like chugging along at it, making pretty good progress. And then uh, I was asked to write a youth resistance piece, and my life has forever changed. And I dove headfirst into that, and it kind of just took me a different direction. But I think some of it does come down to, like, I enjoy doing it. Like it, reading, it's just like getting another little piece of the puzzle, and like occasionally getting smacked in the face with something I don't know. Uh, and I, I don't ever see it as like I need to set aside this time. And in fact, I think if I did, like it might actually detract from it a little bit.
3: It would probably. I actually probably wouldn't want to know because it would. I would be like, "Holy shit!" Like, how long have I been reading about this on any given day or week? And I'm yeah I think it'd be more of a deterrent if I gave it thought
4: well but what is though because I I think like most of us like can you imagine if you could like see all of the tonnage you've stacked like stacked up over time like I would like to see that like I think that would be a cool thing to see and that was part of the reason like I kind of like the book goal was because like I gotta wait for gains like that stuff has to accumulate over time like with books and papers like that shit's immediate
3: the other side would be you know SIBA yourself and you're like, why aren't I farther along at this process given the number of hours I've put into this? I mean,
4: I got a, I got a book on a journey that you can read about that might change your perspective on that. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. Enjoy the process. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, even some of it, we read some of these like big technical papers and I think at any given time, like most of us are trudging through something that is way over our heads oh. and like for a while I tried to have a book like I try to have one book that was kicking my ass one book about someone kicking ass and then one book that was just completely off the wall from what I normally read and having that kind of perspective out of it like I'd read three pages of spontaneous brain and like want to beat my forehead against a wall and then go read you know Patrick Rothfuss for a little while and be like oh This is awesome and then be ready to go back to spontaneous brain and it it is kind of that same like challenge threat thing that we talk about with a lot of instances like it's just like yeah this is a challenge i want to get through this book and when i get through this book i get to buy another book
3: (laughs) to circle back a little bit would you say that helps you with conversations with patients the diversity of things that you read
4: Probably works both ways um i mean in the pediatric population i doubt any of them are reading uh, spontaneous brain or uh, uh i'm definitely never going to read Wittgenstein. i'll just lay that out for you right
3: it's now pretty depressing for me to hear that. um
4: but in the same regard i i was told a story yesterday about uh, a patient experience where i was doing an eval on an individual and during the course of the eval I said something to him and his response was, so it goes, which is a quote from a Vonnegut. It's actually a quote from a lot of Vonnegut books. And uh, like I just immediately responded like, ho-hum, which is another Kilgore Trout reference from Vonnegut. And like you just saw the dude's face and was like, I could ask him to do anything at this point. I'm in. And, And it was just having that like immediate relation out of it. But I think like some of it is like learning those skills of having the conversations of like being broad based on what goes on. And the wider your perspective is, the easier it is to have those conversations, whether it be with like research or like, I mean, if I only read all the stuff that like Stevie Z and Joel put out, like I would have a very narrow worldview on manual therapy. And the same thing, like if I only read uh, Star Trek then you know where would where how would i feel about, about star Wars? The, yeah about star wars yeah you know, that's, that's yeah there has to be like some perspective on it
3: yeah i don't think i have anything to add i mean i think it makes us more relatable the more things i read about uh, and I have a diversification of like my world view it makes me easier to talk to people hopefully and somewhat more relatable to them as a human being
4: that was the end of our questions do you have uh, anything else to add this evening all right Thanks for coming, guys.
2: so much for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you liked this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcast from. That'll be super helpful at driving traffic to this podcast and help get the word out about the latest nuanced health and fitness information. In addition, if you'd like to attend one of the Barbell Medicine pain and rehab seminars, I've a link to the upcoming seminars in the description below. They are both in Australia. We're going to be releasing some domestic dates in the near future. So keep your eye out for that. As always, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.